Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Hey, this is DeRay. I welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Ivitayo Beverly Johnson, the executive director of the United Health Organization and Project Healthy Living. And we have the author, Mary Otto. Both of them are here to talk to us about teeth. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as usual. We put Clint's news at the beginning of the normal news segment because he wasn't with us in recording this time. So you'll hear him give his news, and then you'll hear the news the way you normally hear it. Love, Clint. Happy we got his news this week. And before we jump into this episode, my word for this week is about uh, following your hunch. So I think about some of the big projects that we did. We They started with a question. We had a thought, an idea, and we followed it to see if we were right. So when we did the big police union contract project, we didn't know that the police union contracts actually had these clauses in it, but we had a guess and we had a question that it might. And we followed the hunch. We did the research and then we found things that were even more wild than we thought might be there. So remember to follow your hunch. And then the last thing is that the book comes out on September 4th. And you can get it at Dray.com, D-R-A-Y.com. You can pre-order it now. And remember that a portion of the pre-sales up to 20000 actually goes to help the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And they are fighting for our rights right now. They're doing a lot of work around the Supreme Court nomination. So pre-order it now. Support me. Support the work. Appreciate it. What's going on, y'all? I've been thinking about how people sometimes in the conversation around immigration in immigration reform, people attempt to create this sort of moral distinction between their own ancestors who immigrated to this country in comparison to many of the folks arriving at the southern border today by saying some iteration of, well, my early ancestors came here legally, which the very statement implies that others, you know, largely black and brown folks coming in now should do the same. And the thing about this is that it largely ignores how immigration laws are wholly different now than they were for the vast majority of American history. And essentially between the 17th century and the early 20th century, immigrants basically poured into the U.S. by the thousands and thousands and thousands because there essentially were no immigration laws to break in the first place. So, for example, only 1% of people who showed up at Ellis Island were turned away. For the most part, you just got in a boat, showed up, and you started your new life. And it wasn't until the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which pretty much just as it sounds, was designed to exclude people of Chinese descent from entering the United States, that we had any federal restriction on who could enter the country at all of any kind. And as we move into the 20th century, even after Congress implemented immigration quotas in an attempt to keep out Southern and Eastern Europeans who, at this point in history, experienced profound racial discrimination and, as we've discussed before, were not necessarily seen as white in the way that they ultimately assimilated to be, uh, they were kept out via the 1921 Emergency Quota Act and the 1924 National Origins Act. But despite those restrictions, people from these countries still continued to sneak into the U.S. by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And while it's clear that racism has always been the sort of central dynamic that has shaped trends in U.S. immigration, I also think people underappreciate how an Irish farmer facing famine in the 19th century and a mother 
in Central America fleeing violence in the 21st century both basically just want safety and security for their family. So people saying, well, my Irish great-grandfather would have come here legally if those had been the laws in place. You don't know that. None of us do. And, and it's quite possible that he would have felt a sense of desperation that made him and his family circumnavigate the system uh, because when you want safety for your family, you'll often do things that exist beyond the sort of limited frameworks of of legality and non-legality. So just something important to keep in mind as we continue to have this conversation around immigration and what it should look like. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter and Instagram. And this is DeRay at DeRay on Twitter. So y'all, I saw... Black Klansman this weekend. Oh, was snap. it as good as people said it was? It's probably better than people said it was, to be honest. I've heard mixed reviews, Britt. I, well, you know, I, mm, I can only give you my review. <laughs> Here's what my review is. <laughs> my review okay. is that Spike is back in full effect, Uh-oh. being Spike okay. at his best. I feel like I, w- I was already excited about the movie, but it gave me so much more than I was expecting. And the thing about a Spike Lee joint is that there are themes that they're going to make very, very obvious to you. And then there are themes that you're going to continue to turn over in your head for days and weeks and months after. And I'm at the point where I'm really thinking about some of the more subtle themes about patriarchy and white women in particular um, around the inside-outside strategy. There are just so many complex things that are being pulled and teased apart. And you're not necessarily being given an answer, but you are being provoked to consider these things. And then there are the really obvious themes that that are clear, right? White supremacy is bad. (laughs) One of the things that I heard, though, Britt, is that people said that there was like a false equivalency between the KKK and the Panthers. Again, I haven't seen it, but since we're talking about it, I thought I'd ask you because you saw it. Yeah, so I I remember having this moment, actually, and I I think I know which which scenes they're talking about just because of the way they're juxtaposed in the movie. I took it very differently, though. Um, And, I, you know, this is what art does, right? It, It causes you to have conversations and interpret things in many different ways. I actually took it to be differentiating between so-called white power and black power um, in examining what they're rooted in, right? So the, the, the scenes are literally like cutting in and out from each other, but without giving a spoiler, I think that, and, and what struck me the most was actually what black power is rooted in and the stories that were told around that and why it was necessary versus why people were calling out white power and the things that inspired that. So I feel like I I get how people can walk away with that. I would urge people to reconsider the actual dialogue in in that space. And I'm trying really hard not to give spoilers, but you have to go see it. Got it. I'm excited to see it. And it's a true story, right? Yeah, it's based on a true story. Ron Stallworth is real. He wrote a book on it, so it's based on his book. And, you know, there's like a really good, there's some good follow-up articles about what was what was creative license and what was real. But um, a lot of it was very real and surprising. <laughs> David Duke's toupee is also apparently one of the things that's very accurate in the film. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it is based on a true story. It, I find it to be really provocative, especially given that, the very tiny Unite the Right rally was happening yesterday. Um, I'm also just, I, 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 I'm still a little worried being a, a part-time D.C. resident that like 
the the march itself was always going to be small and it's perhaps a distraction from something else going on. And so I hope that that's not true. But um, yeah, like in the shadow of the anniversary of Charlottesville, the murder of Heather Heyer uh, and that march, I like watched it that night um, and it was uh, chilling to be totally frank. And this is not an ad. I just really like the movie. <laughs> Let's also talk about the Unite the Right rally just because it happened. Brittany already gave some feedback on it. Tim, do you have any? I mean, I, I I thought it was obscene, the level of police protection that the white supremacists received. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a situation where they, mm-hmm. they got a police escort. There were more police protecting them than there were white supremacists. Uh, and it's a reminder that the police response to white supremacists is sort of handling them with kid gloves and protection where uh, black protesters are handled with violence, right? And and that juxtaposition, mm. I think, speaks volumes about the role of police and the way that they see their role uh, and who they see themselves as responsible to defend in society. I was actually, you know, NPR interviewed one of the leaders of the rally and what was both shocking about the the interview and disappointing was at the end, uh, the guy made a case for scientific racism. Like he literally is like, you know, we know that people's bodies are different. And because we know there's differences in people's bodies, there must be differences in people's minds. Like that's how he sort of sets it up. And then he says, well, the differences in the IQ starts off with Jews. Jews have the highest IQ. And then he goes down and it's like white people, Latinos and black people. That's sort of like the last three, right? And the host doesn't challenge him as much as the host sort of like asks another question. You're like, okay. Wait, what white supremacist taxonomy is this? So now now Jews are at the top of the hierarchy in the white supre- in the Nazi movement? Like, I don't understand how that, like, when did that happen? So Sam, here's the thing is that what he says, though, is he says, well, I'm not a white supremacist because if I was a white supremacist, I would say that white people have the highest IQ, but the data doesn't say that. The data says that uh, Jews have the highest IQ. You know, like he, this is like the argument he's espousing, right? And the host just like lets it go unchallenged, which is like, it was wild to read in the transcript. It was tr- wild to hear. And, you know, when we see the media do this, like, well, this is an argument and we have to cover all the arguments. What I keep saying to myself is like, you know who wasn't on NPR? Those people who shot up that newspaper, they weren't on NPR. Like the people who think that the media should be crucified and killed, they're not on NPR. They're not on anybody's morning show. They're not on the news. Why? Because all the people in the media realize that that language actually has deadly consequences. Like they get it. But when we talk about white supremacy and race, people still espouse this like both sides thing. And it's just not, it not only is it not true, but it actually is really dangerous for people. And it's a reminder that like these reporters, many of them are not equipped to even respond, right? Like they, they probably even believe this stuff. Or if they don't believe it, they don't know how to effectively challenge it. And I think that's a, that's a huge problem for the media not really being qualified to to interview folks in the first place if they don't know how to actually to accurately uh, figure out sort of how to debunk these sort of uh, pseudoscientific claims that are so often used to justify white supremacy. Could not agree more. I was very disappointed in that um in that interview in the construction of that segment and putting Someone um, who, you know, supposedly is from the Black Lives Matter end of things um, in some kind of direct 
opposition or juxtaposition as if they're two sides of the same coin. And we keep having this conversation um, and it just, it, it's, and we keep pushing the media on this. Um, and it, some days it just feels like we're actually not making any traction on it. I was, I was quite disappointed in that one. Shall we get to the news? Sure. So let's talk about Cincinnati, where last week police tased an 11-year-old girl in the back as she walked away for allegedly shoplifting food from a convenience store. And then they charged her with uh, obstructing official business and theft. So since this, uh, this case has sort of made national news, it has prompted a, a response from the city. Number one, they've responded by dropping the charges. The prosecutor dropped the charges against the girl, which is good. Uh, But it's also brought to light the fact that the police use of force policy in Cincinnati allows the police to taser people over the age of seven, only seven years old. Uh, And, you know, this is another example of how police policies often enable them to use violence against and harm civilians in situations that are so obviously unnecessary. You know, people who are, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old or 11 years old in this case can be tased in Cincinnati. Uh, And, you know, it's important to note that this is not the case everywhere. So in some police departments, there are more restrictions on how police can use tasers, restricting them from using tasers against any children, for example, as is the case in Chicago in all cases where the person is not actively attacking the police, right? And so, you know, I bring this to the table just to once again uh, emphasize the fact that policy matters and that oftentimes these policies that are in place in plain sight in police departments uh, allow them to continually use violence uh, in a way that is authorized by their department and therefore uh, does not result in any type of accountability. And, you know, so often we have the conversation around police violence only in the context of death. And obviously that is the most extreme outcome to police violence, but police violence is exacted upon people and obviously disproportionately upon marginalized people, people of color, black people and indigenous people um, every single day in many, many different ways. And this is an example of that because when we're talking about police violence, we're not just talking about the roots of police forces in this country and the ways in which they were created to control Black bodies and other bodies instead of actually serve and protect. We're not just talking about um, bad apples, right? We're talking about an entirely problematic system. But we're also talking about disproportionate responses. I remember I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was. But back when Toys R Us was still a thing, I remember stealing a key for a caboodle. Um, A caboodle was like a little makeup and jewelry chest in fun colors that they marketed to little girls. I had one, but I lost the key. And so there was like a key taped to the caboodle and I stole it, right? Because I I was a kid. Kids test boundaries. Like kids do this all the time. And they're not, there's, there doesn't end up being a problem. I wasn't caught in the store, but my mother caught me when we got home. She made me return it. And she told me never to do that again because she was very clear that I did not have the same space and room to be a child that white children do. Uh, This is happening to children of color all the time because the disproportionate response that people of color receive, even children of color receive, can be deeply harmful. It can have physical effects like being tased. It can end up in death. So my mom wanted me to be very clear. I'm not 
angry with you. You should never steal things that are not yours. And this is a lesson that you need to learn. But you also need to learn the lesson that what will be treated like a small infraction for a white child can be a major infraction for you. And it's important to recognize that these disproportionate responses are happening not just in cases of bad judgment by a single police officer, but to your point, Sam, in the cases of policy that is written down, mandated, and shared across departments, as is the case here in Cincinnati. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is that I'm always reminded about the way uh, the rules function on the hidden level and people don't realize. So this happens and people are outraged. They're like, oh my God, how could you tase a kid? And what is their response? Their response is like, we were following the rules, right? The rules say that like gotta be over seven and she was over seven. And like the conversation normally stops there and people hear it and they're like, well, that was not a violation of policy. And you're like, that's right. And that is an indictment of the system, an indictment of the policy. And what we'd say is that there are things like this all across the country, that these things are hidden. People are like, oh my God, that's wrong. So even in Baltimore, where everybody just saw the video of the officer like beat up the man and there's no justification at any point that he should have touched him at all, let alone beat him up the way we saw happen on the video, is that that officer just resigned. He's going to be able to do whatever he wants in another district. It doesn't look like he's going to get charged right now, so we'll see. But what's interesting is that the state law literally says that an officer in probation, which was that officer, that the officer can be fired for a host of things during probation, except for an instance of brutality. And you're like, that makes, that is so, that's such a wild thing to carve out. But everybody saying that the police officer should be fired, like me, the response from the system is like, well, we can't fire him because the law says that he can't actually get fired on probation just for brutality. And it's like, you know, we have so much more work to do to help people realize the way that the system is set up that protects the worst things that happen in society especially from people who are supposed to be public servants. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling And the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Patsy of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So speaking of police and this entire system, uh, we had a really big victory last week uh, in in St. Louis. We talked about um, the work that was done both locally and nationally to oust 27-year county prosecutor incumbent Bob McCullough in my hometown of St. Louis County, where I still split my time. Um, and uh, we were able to replace Bob McCullough um, with a young African-American, new county prosecutor, um, Wesley Bell. Now, this was a primary, um, but it is a highly Democratic county. And so it is a foregone conclusion that Wesley Bell will be the next county prosecutor. Um, huge, huge, huge victory. I mean, it was led by local activists, the Buy Bob campaign with folks um, like our friend Kayla at the forefront were really critical in helping people reimagine a new future for St. Louis County. And in doing so, took down an incumbent that people thought was impossible to defeat. Um, There had been lawsuits brought to say that Bob McCullough had not done his job effectively and that he had been patently racist for all of that 27 years. That lawsuit was dismissed. There were also challenges to Bob McCullough's ethical fitness, and those challenges were roundly denied. And yet the people took the power in their hands and made sure that Wesley Bell uh, would replace Bob McCullough on the ticket as a Democratic nominee. Here's what's really important about Bob McCullough, though. If you don't know, Bob McCullough is the primary reason why Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Michael Brown, never saw the inside of a jail cell um, and was never even indicted for that crime. 
a lot of people from Harvard law professors to national and local legal analysts were highly critical of Bob McCullough's engagement with the grand jury around the Darren Wilson case. We've heard the phrase before that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich if they want to, and yet Darren Wilson is still a free man, and there are plenty of peaceful protesters who have spent more time in jail than Darren Wilson ever did. Justin Hansford, one of those protesters and a friend of ours who's also the head of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Georgetown, wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post, of which I am in full support, basically saying that that should not continue to be the case and that Wesley Bell, once he is inaugurated, should reopen the case of Michael Brown's killing and the potential indictment of Darren Wilson. Um, He calls the fact that that indictment has not happened a gaping wound in the nation's psyche. And I think that's critically important when we recognize Ferguson as a catalyst for movements all across the world, um, as a catalyst that re-engaged and re ignited a racial justice movement in this country, the fact that that case still remains in the state in which it is, the fact that there was such an injustice done in that particular case um, is something that is still a deep wound for a lot of people and I think could both symbolically and literally move us forward should that case be reopened and prosecuted in the way that it should have been in the first place. Um, And so I'm proud of the people for taking our future in our hands, but we should certainly have a full circle moment and engage in the kind of accountability that we need to see across the entire country. You know, it's been so inspiring to see, you know, local activists and organizers in St. Louis and also in, you know, we saw in Chicago and uh, in in Cleveland and in so many other places uh, successfully organizing to replace uh, folks who have been in positions of power for so long and have used that power, like Bob McCullough, uh, have used that power as a prosecutor to... uh, continually uh, contribute towards a system that has allowed police violence uh, and mass incarceration to impact particularly communities of color, um, you know, for for decades. Uh, And so, you know, just to provide some data for this, St. Louis County has one of the highest rates of jail deaths in the country, according to investigation from the Huffington Post. Um, You know, St. Louis City, according to our data uh, from Mapping Police Violence, has the highest rate of of killings by police in the nation. And the St. Louis area, St. Louis County uh, writ large, also has an elevated rate of police violence. And so, you know, these changes are happening in a context of, uh, you know, disproportionate and extremely high levels of, uh, you know, racialized police violence and mass incarceration uh, and seeing folks who are being elected uh, that are committed to actually making progress towards dismantling uh, those systems and structures that and providing accountability, uh, you know, in the case of Mike Brown and, and also in the case of so many others um, that have been victimized by this system is really inspiring. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to see progress uh, being made in St. Louis and across the country uh, to put people in power who actually are going to to keep communities safe and make the changes that need to be made uh, in order for us to be free. When I think about this election, you know, I was hearing one of the organizers talk on the radio uh, just today, actually. And they were saying that all the polls said that McCullough was going to win by a landslide. 
every piece of data suggested that the electorate would not change. If you remember, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right after Mike Brown was killed, there was not the sweeping rise in turnout in the area or the region that people had hoped or thought there would be because of the protests. I remember uh, being in the street in St. Louis along with Brittany and everybody else on No Indictment Night and in just that energy and the tension and all that stuff didn't turn into the kind of political sort of energy or force that people thought it would be. And what the organizer said today that I'll just repeat here is that they said, you know, we ignored the polls because we knew what we knew about community. And they said that they had their own data that suggested if they delivered a candidate and a message that worked, that they would be able to change the electorate and they'd be able to win. So despite every poll up until the very end saying that McCullough would win by a landslide, they texted, they called, they canvassed, and they did it in places that traditionally didn't have high turnout. And what we saw on election day was not only did Wesley Bell win, but he handedly won. It wasn't like 1,000 votes. You know, he won by enough that it is like a legitimate mandate. So I'm I'm proud of that, and I think that that I'm proud of that for all the protesters, uh, and also mindful that there are a lot of lessons that we can learn about the way that we have thought about success and measuring success, especially during elections or leading up to the actual elections or during campaigns, is not always true to our lived experience, and we have to trust that. So it's interesting and beautiful to see people like Ocasio Cortez, who people thought that like that was the longest shot in America, and she won. Wesley Bell won, and people all across the country are winning. We know that elections aren't the end-all, be-all, but they do set us up for a kind of systemic change that we need. DeRay, I think this is such a critical point. Nelson Mandela once said, it always seems impossible till it's done. And the naysayers and the critics and the analysts who are well-intentioned will often say that they can read the tea leaves in a particular way. But that doesn't mean that we stop fighting. That doesn't mean that we stop pushing. That doesn't mean that we stop innovating. And that doesn't mean that we stop putting ourselves up to make the change. Leslie McSpadden, who is Michael Brown Jr.'s mother, has announced her run for Ferguson City Council. Um, It's an incredibly beautiful thing to see people stepping up in so many brand new ways. But I'm hopeful to see this case reopened, and I'd love to know what you all think about it. One of the best things about the news is that there's so much stuff happening uh, that doesn't make the public conversation, and we get to talk about it. And today's news is exactly that for me. It is about driver's licenses, is that there's a decline in the number of people getting driver's licenses, and nobody knows why. So there's a new study that just came out uh, by two researchers at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. And what they know is that the percentage of people with a driver's license decreased between 2011 and 2014 across all age groups. And they also say that for people aged 16 to 44, that percentage has been decreasing steadily since 1983. Now, here's some of the percentages about the the decrease. I was shocked by this, is that in 2014, just 24.5% of 16-year-olds had a license, a 47% decrease from 1983 when 46.2% did. And for 19-year-olds, 69% had licenses, driver's licenses in 2014, compared to 87.3% in 1983, a 21% decrease. Now, they don't know why, uh, because people actually, when they when they have polled people, the data doesn't suggest that like public transportation is the reason why people are getting less licenses. The data suggests that the top three reasons where they were too busy to get a license Owning a vehicle is just too expensive or they're able to get transportation from other people. Uh, 
So I bring this up just because I'm fascinated by, interested in what that means for cities, definitely for low-income people and and people in marginalized neighborhoods, black and brown people. I'm also interested in what this immediately made me think of was all of the systems that we build around driver's licenses. So you think about in most places, automatic voter registration is automatic at the DMV. Like that is where the automaticity comes in. You even think about like signing up to get like a loan or like open a bank account or all these things that like if you don't have a driver's license, it just is much harder to do. And I'd love to think more about like the data on people who don't have driver's licenses but have other official forms of ID and like what that will mean as time continues. Because there's so many parts of this world that exist, like your entrance into them is a driver's license. And there's some cities that are better equipped to deal with this than not. So like New York City, for instance, because a lot of people don't drive because of subways. But I would believe that there are places across the country where the decrease in driver's licenses has not been met with some innovation at the city or town level. Yeah, so this made me immediately think of voter ID. Uh, And, you know, one thing that was interesting about that article was that uh, older Americans are more likely to have driver's licenses, but younger Americans are far less likely. And now you're seeing more states impose these voter ID laws, strict photo ID laws. And that creates this sort of dichotomy where it becomes harder and harder for younger people to participate in elections. Uh, and, you know, assuming that they don't have other forms of ID, which, you know, I'm interested to see more more data on that. But I'm assuming here that that decrease in the driver's license rates uh, is not met with an increase in other forms of ID. Um but if that's the case, I mean, that makes it harder for folks to participate in elections. Uh, and it's also a reminder that, you know, as our society changes, as technology changes, you know, now people can, you know, get Uber and go where they want to go or Lyft. Um, and so, you know, as a car, you're no longer dependent on necessarily owning a car to get around. Um, and how our, our systems and structures uh, update to reflect that reality uh, that you might not actually need a driver's license to drive, uh, to, to transport yourself, but you still need a driver's license for all of these other things. Uh, and what can that, you know, form of ID be uh, that people can get and that is readily available that doesn't require it? And, you know, Sam, I'm one of those people. I kind of split my time between D.C., New York, and St. Louis. And in St. Louis, I drive. In D.C. and New York, I don't. Uh, And I left my car in St. Louis. And to be very clear, there are lots of people, even in cities where you have to drive a lot, who are still opting out of that, especially when we look at places like Ferguson, once again, that uh, raised revenue by abusing people, often by pulling them over um, and raising um, that revenue through court fines and fees and ticket fees and all of those kinds of things. So there are people for whom driving is not only uh, not sensible anymore, it is also not always safe. And that means that, of course, we're going to see a decrease um, and we're going to see some communities that are persistently challenged by the need to have this kind of identification. Um, And so I couldn't agree with you all more. There have to be solutions to this. Just because there are solutions to get people a state ID, for example, doesn't then mean that those IDs should be required for voting. And I just want to make sure that we're really clear about that. It is still a poll tax. It is still a barrier to a right of being a citizen of a democracy. And it is not something that should exist. And voter ID laws are something that we absolutely have to be fighting all across the country. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. Just because we ensure people's access to an alternative ID doesn't mean that that ID should then have to be required to do things like vote. Right. And there is data to suggest that 
you know, even when you look at this question of who has ID uh, writ large, whether it's a driver's license or or some other form of ID, uh, there are these huge racial disparities that folks know who are creating these voter ID laws. Uh, and the data show that 8% of whites, uh, white Americans do not have a valid photo ID compared to 25% of black Americans and 19%. 25%? Uh, yeah, 25%. So Sam, one in four. That is wild. Uh, yeah. Eight percent of whites do not have a valid photo ID compared to twenty-five percent of blacks and nineteen percent of folks in the Latinx community. Um, so, so those are the disparities that, that are being targeted uh, when you see these voter ID laws, uh, and that, and then it gets even worse uh, when you know driver's licenses are are no longer uh, as prevalent. Well, learn something new every day. Sadly, it's unsurprising though. Again, barriers. Right. And that's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about Book your trip at Oceocean.com. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Adidas, Elf Cosmetics, and Lego. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cashback rates are even bigger. You can save on everything you need for summer like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now my conversation with Mariato and Ifatayo Beverly Johnson. Mary and Ife, thanks so much for joining us today on Patsy of the People. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to be here. So I came across you two because I am obsessed with dental care. I used to be the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore, and I managed uh, a health insurance plan that had about 20,000 subscribers. And I was always fascinated with the lack of care devoted to teeth or like that. I just like was fascinated by it. And then I saw uh, that your book came out and I was like, I want to understand. So I'm happy that we're here. It's great to be here. So what, let's start with the um, sort of the big picture is what are the things about dental care that you think are completely absent from the public conversation? What are those things? As you pointed out just now, it's a separate piece of our healthcare system, and it's a piece that gets left off the table often because of its separation. 
And that separation dates back to your home city of Baltimore in 1840 with the founding of the first dental college in the world. It was open right in Baltimore. And as the creation story of the dental profession goes, these early dentists who were self-trained gentlemen— learn their skills from a more uh, older provider, you know, just through the preceptorship system that dates back to the Middle Ages. They approached the physicians at the University of Maryland College of Medicine and asked if they would consider adding a course of dental training to the medical school. And this was 1840, time when, you know, specialization was just starting, scientific knowledge about medicine was just kind of evolving. The physicians said, that the subject of dentistry was of no consequence and sort of sent these dentists on their way. And these two gentlemen, Horace Hayden and Chapin Harris, started their dental college a few blocks away from the medical school. And this whole separate profession that was not a specialty of medicine grew and evolved and a separate payment system evolved and a separate system of providing the care. And it's gone on like that for all these years since generations you know we we get our care in a separate place from our medical care typically we our medical records and our dental records are not kept together they're not even really compatible um code wise the payment system is separate and you have to bridge this gap to get care especially if you're a person who doesn't have benefits which you know represents about well, roughly a third of Americans either they've experienced significant barriers getting care due to the lack of money or benefits or they're living in a geographical area without enough dentists or other oral health providers. Uh, there are millions and, you know, tens of millions of us, like roughly, you know, a third of our country is missing out on just routine care due to different barriers. They can't bridge this gap between the medical healthcare system and our dental system. Ife? Yeah, I I think also uh, it's the triple A's for me. There's lack of awareness, there's lack of access, and a lack of affordability. Um, We have entire communities where they are, uh, they're dental deserts in in essence. Uh, We don't have uh, really education about oral health and how it impacts other systems in your body. It's not just um, that you have a toothache. It's how does that impact your cardiovascular disease or your diabetes or hypertension. All those things are interrelated, and we have separated your mouth like it it belongs in another part of the room rather than in your body. Um, We also, I think, sometimes forget to ask basic questions like, why do you brush? Uh, are you brushing so that you have a happy smile? Are you doing it to get rid of the bacteria that could be deadly? Are you trying to um, make it uh, so that you can get a job, you know, a fresh breath? We don't really even talk about why we brush uh, or, or floss or any of those things. Um, we have entire um, communities where they may have one dentist or no dentist at all to provide service uh, to thousands of people, especially in rural communities. We we look at this sometimes as being a heavy urban uh, issue, but we have overlooked the fact that rural communities are probably uh, as uh, 
deeply impacted, if not more impacted, than some of the rural areas. Uh, and we don't look at the economic impact of dentistry. Uh, we don't talk about how it impacts the bottom line for businesses. We don't talk about how it affects education for children. We don't look at um, whether or not there's even a political will to address the issue. I mean, there's so many things on the plate. We could go on all day just with what the issues are. But um, we now just have to figure out how do we, as a collective, start addressing this and make it uh, raise the public awareness and public perception about the importance of oral health to be, being something beyond just tooth decay. What's the difference between dental care for kids and dental care for adults? Well, under Medicaid, children are entitled to, to dental care under Medicaid. Adults, the adult dental benefits under Medicaid are considered optional, and they states can add them or take them away. Just, just a few weeks ago, Kentucky Governor Matt Bevins eliminated dental benefits and vision benefits for like 460,000 adults after a, in sort of a move to protest a court ruling related to the state decision to expand Medicaid under a previous governor. So these dental benefits can just disappear for adults in a day's, you know, in a, in a day. So adults, poor adults, working poor adults who are struggling to make ends meet every day may not get dental benefits and they face the same challenges that their children do in finding dental providers. Um, most dental care in this country is provided under the private practice system, and dentists tend to gravitate to the more, you know, fluent urban areas where they can, you know, they're assured a better return on their investment in their expensive educations and their equipment and staffing for their offices. And many of these communities, whether, as Ife mentioned, the rural communities, you know, people may have to travel several hours to find a dentist who will accept their benefits, or they may run up against the same issues that Mrs. Driver did, Diamante's mom. You know, the, the few Medicaid dentists were overbooked and not accepting new patients, or they were just not available to her children. I've heard that like the dental lobby isn't necessarily pro fixing the system in the way that people think it should be fixed, but I actually have no clue what that means. So I thought I'd ask. Well, you've got um, pros and cons with that. You have people on both sides. Uh, you have a bunch of dentists who uh, have a hard time, for example, with Medicaid because of the reimbursement rate is so extremely low that if uh, dentists who want to serve Medicaid patients actually serve the number that they want to serve, they would end up paying to serve them. So that creates a problem. Yeah, the dental lobby represents the interests of private practitioners, but there's a tension between those interests and public health interests, which focus on the, the health needs of an entire population. So that has been a recurring theme throughout the years, you know, through government and advocacy efforts to expand care to the tens of millions of Americans who've lacked it. And the private practitioners who've, you know, struggled for, you know, to maintain professional authority and autonomy. What does expand care mean? Like, what would, if you, if you could just expand care to people with dental, what would that mean? Well, there are different public health measures like fighting any other kind of disease that you can, you can enact. Like water fluoridation, for instance, it's a huge 
you know, measure a triumph of, of public health in the 20th century. But that already exists. But it reaches only 75% of people, and most of these decisions are made on a community level. So, All water's not fluoride? There's no, no, fluoride no, not even no, close. no, no. <laughs> water, water supplies are controlled by, you know, usually municipal, you know, authorities or counties or county governments, and there's still a lot of misinformation about it. But that that's one big step. So part of expansion would be like fluoridation. Yeah, community water fluoridation Fluorid- program. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's okay, what step. else? And, you know, and the organized dentistry has supported community water fluoridation. But there are places where organized dentistry and, and public health efforts have clashed. And a lot of those have to do with workforce issues, giving dental hygienists more autonomy to go out to public schools or public, uh, public health clinics and screen children without first being examined by a dentist. Uh, There's a new workforce model. It's not new in other parts of the world, but here dental therapists who are actually technically trained uh, providers who are working in tribal areas in Alaska and and Oregon and and, uh, Washington State and Minnesota. Well, they work throughout the state of Minnesota and they can actually drill and fill teeth. They work as part of dentist-headed teams, you know, to get more care to Medicaid patients. What's the uh, difference between a dental therapist, a dental hygienist, and a dentist? Well, a dentist has gone through, you know, several years of training, is well-versed in a wide variety of procedures, and is considered the, the sort of head of the dental team. A dental hygienist is trained in prevention and, and patient um, education, and also does procedures that under the the supervision of a dentist generally, but it could be a general supervision where she goes, he or she goes out to public health settings, screens, does sealants, does fluoride varnishes, different kinds of preventive uh, care. And they're the folks Um, who do your cleanings. Yeah, yeah. And then dental therapists who've been used for, you know, decades in other parts of the world do additional treatments that are considered by dentists um, irreversible surgical procedures like drilling oh, and, it, and some it, extractions. And the dental therapists who are are working in this country, uh, including in the tribal areas and, and in the state of Minnesota, they've also been approved to work in Maine, Vermont, and very recently in Arizona, but they haven't started yet. Are there enough dentists? No. Why not? Uh, well, for one, it cost a million dollars to become a dentist. Uh, a lot of folks wow. uh, come out of dental school in with terrible debt. And so um, you don't get a lot of the dentists that want to then go into some of the rural areas where they'll only uh, get a few patients or where um, they can't charge as much. And they've got to they've got to service that debt. So a lot of what you're seeing with um, the dentists are are folks who are trying to stay afloat. Uh, you know, dentists sometimes get a bad rap for not doing more or being more giving or caring and all that kind of stuff, but they also have to feed their families and eat. And um, it, they come out uh, really burdened out of uh, out of dental school. Um, we also just don't have enough people who are interested in the lack of sexiness that dentistry has, as opposed right. to becoming maybe a cardiologist or something like that. There's this hierarchy in medicine uh, that, for some reason, people 
will say one area is better than the other. Uh, and so when uh, you have people going to dental school or you start talking to people about becoming a dentist, they don't want to put in all that time and effort and money to get a poor return. Now, when we think about kids, I, I believe because they their baby their baby teeth, it's that what are the things that we aren't doing around dental prevention, dental hygiene? Like, I think about being in a school system in Baltimore. It's like I was always trying to figure out like what could we do to make sure all of our kids got. You know, I manage the employer part of the benefit, so my biggest reach was with our employees and then their their kids. Like, if you had a magic wand, what would we be doing in every? elementary school in the country with regard to dental care? I would start with pregnancy. Um, because pregnancy? The, yeah, the pregnant mother needs uh, dental care. And then we need to be educating that mother that their child should have their first visit by age one. And we don't ever think about children going to the dentist by age one. Uh, we, we need to start doing uh, sealants and, and uh, fluoride treatments and, and varnishes with children in uh, daycare and in elementary school. We need to have uh, some sort of school-based clinics in all the schools or close by. We need to start making it possible uh, for dental hygienists or therapists to go into schools and teach children about oral health and and provide some of the things that uh, poorer families may take as a luxury, like changing your toothbrush Often enough, you know, people sometimes are using the same toothbrush two years later. So uh, how often are you supposed to change your toothbrush? Probably about every three months. And what is you talked about sealant. What is sealant? Well, it's um, it's kind of like a little um, how would you say a varnish? It's something that you place on the tooth to prevent um, decay. So on the molars, on the molars. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, the. To the teeth where the children are doing all the chewing and getting all the gummy stuff and the sweetness on their teeth that end up rotting those teeth. Um, sometimes uh, instead of trying to make sure that they're brushing after every meal and after every snack and after everything, uh, all the sugary drinks, you seal the tooth and it, hmm. it keeps it from decaying. Do a lot of people do that? Oh, yes. Just not enough. And the kids who need, you know, at highest risk often don't get the sealants. And there's school sealant programs in some states, but not others. What are some of the misconceptions around dental care that you've experienced out in the field? Um, I think my very favorite of all times, uh, we went to, we had a a free clinic and we did some surveys and we asked people about how often they floss. And uh, some people said they didn't. And we asked why they didn't. And my favorite answer was because my teeth have been flossed already. Uh, <laughs> it's like a once in a lifetime yeah, you, thing. It's, You're like, it's been uh, done. You know, why, why do it again? they've done that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we have a lot of misconceptions about, about oral health. Uh, we don't know uh, how much toothpaste even to use. Uh, we don't know how often you should brush. We don't know how long you should brush. We don't know the importance of flossing and why. We don't understand um, where cavities actually form. Um, we don't understand uh, the the role of bacteria in our mouths. We don't understand the importance of, of oral health to job security. What's the importance of oral health to job security? That's new to me. Well, if you uh, have a, a front desk job, and mm-hmm. right now 
everyone is really into the concept of uh, customer service and and presenting this this face to the community. If you have a tooth missing, and you could be the greatest receptionist in the mm. world, but you know someone's not going to hire your smile if it's not a good smile. So you have people who, uh, because they're uh, poor or because they don't have good oral health or, or good care, end up having uh, problems with their teeth, and it affects then uh, their ability to get a job, which then makes their teeth worse, which then affects their ability to eat. All those things also affect uh, their nutrition. Um, it affects other organs in their body. There's a huge correlation, for example, between oral health and diabetes and obesity, which are things that run rampant in our community. Um, all these things, you, you have a tendency for people to miss more jobs off of work because of oral health. Um, more kids actually miss days out of school for uh, oral health than any other reason. Uh, there are just a lot of misconceptions about the importance wow. of oral health. What about you, Mary? The American Dental Association had a survey done a couple years ago, and it found that more than one-third of low-income American adults are reluctant to smile. And you think about that. You know, they're ashamed of, the, of their oral health and, and of their smiles and how that impacts their lives, you know, and their opportunities for social advancement or economic advancement to get those jobs that they can that can help them get out of poverty, and poor parents have a harder time, you know, helping their children stay, maintain their oral health. They're worried and afraid. Sometimes they haven't been to the dentist for, you know, a long time, and, and they convey that kind of fear and reluctance and fatalism. You know, we've always lost our teeth in my family, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a message that gets passed on through the generations when you've been sort of shut out of, of, of access. Um, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy on so, many, on so many levels. I'll tell you one of the other things that always got me. When we would do uh, health screenings out in the community, we might be in a mall. And people would come in and they could, would be willing to get pap smears, mammograms, all kinds of things where they had to basically kind of expose themselves a bit. Uh, but if you ask them to open their mouth to do a dental exam, we had to make sure that was probably more screened than the pap smear area because people wow. are so embarrassed about opening their mouths. There's the, and we don't really think about how self-conscious people are about their oral health. One of the things that was spoken about earlier was that for doctors or dentists, I mean, who use Medicaid for, for dentistry, that some of them are essentially losing money or they're paying money to participate in the program. Did I hear that right? Just about. That's the reason why a lot of folks don't take it. What's the fix? Is it that we need to up the reimbursement amount for, for dental things or is it too high so we need to lower the cost of the services? Like what's the, what's the policy fix on that front? I think we really need to raise the reimbursement rate for, for dentists on this. I think everyone's in agreement that the reimbursement rate for Medicaid is much, much too low. That, um, you know, it really is at a point where uh, it doesn't really cover the cost of the service. And for a lot of folks on Medicaid who have extensive services that need to be done, you're not going to be able to get like a, a root canal unless you're going to pay out of pocket. And who has, you know, a few thousand dollars to put into their mouth if they're on Medicaid? What are the advocacy organizations that people should look to who are fighting for dental equity? 
Well, Oral Health 2020 is one that I'm working with, and um, they've been on the forefront of doing uh, social justice issues with oral health and trying to raise public perception and awareness and uh, do education for uh, expanded adult benefits and uh, pregnant mothers and children. Uh, and, and that's a network that's growing in leaps and bounds. The ADA, as uh, which sometimes is at odds <laughs> with some of the other groups also, though, is really working hard at trying to get um, a better educated populace and getting information out um, to the their constituents. I forget the name of the dental hygienist group. American Dental Hygienist Association. Yes, and uh, they they're the, they are the educators. Uh, they're going out and doing quite a bit. But in, in your local communities, you'll find um, a number of groups, especially the FQHCs, the Federally Qualified Health Centers, that are available in your area that are fighting for their lives right now. Uh, because a lot of them, I think 50-something percent, don't even get federal funding. Uh, so um, they're fighting for their lives to fight for your life. So if you have a federally qualified health system in your area, you should be working to try and help them stay afloat. So if I have one in my neighborhood, but I'm not using it, what does it mean to like help it stay afloat? Well, one of the things they do is they also provide service to people with insurance. Having people mm-hmm. who are insured going in helps them pay their bills. Um, but also doing a lot more of that uh, GOTV effort, getting out the vote, talking with your legislators, making sure you're, you're going to town hall meetings and coffee hours with your legislators to tell them about the importance of oral health and why you need it and why you want them to fund it and why you need them to support it in, in your local state uh, legislation as, as well as your uh, at the federal level. We, we need to have more people being vocal about health as, uh, as we are about all the other issues. And we have so many of them right now that we're facing in the country. Yeah, health care will be a major issue in the midterm elections. Um, and, you know, the future of funding for Medicaid and, and Medicare will be, a, you know, a, a huge topic as, as people decide who to vote for. Well, we consider you both friends of the pod. Thanks so much for joining and can't wait to get an update later. Thanks, Doreen. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today.